0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we begin today with a quote from the New York Times. Quote, This is a book about the tiniest of things, the position of an electron, an instant of change. It is also about the biggest of things, the cosmos, infinity, the possibility of free will. Eginton works through ideas by grounding them in his character's lives. The beauty of this book is that Eginton encourages us to recognize all of these complicated truths as part of our reality, even if the ultimate nature of that reality will remain forever elusive. We are finite beings whose perspective will always be limited, but those limits are also what give rise to possibility. When we choose what to observe, we insert our freedom to choose into nature. As Egington writes, quote, we are and ever will be active participants in the universe we discover, end quote, end quote, a mind expanding book, the Times says, heady stuff and anchored in the lives of three individuals, Heisenberg, Kant, and one of our favorite authors, Jorge Luis Borges. We welcome back one of our favorite guests, William Eginton, to discuss his mind-expanding book today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. The last time William Egginton was here, we were also joined by his co-author, David Castillo, and we discussed their book, What Would Cervantes Do?, That episode is in our archives, available to you for free. Today's book is called The Rigor of Angels, Borges, Heisenberg, Kant, and the Ultimate Nature of Reality. We'll hear all about that soon. But first, speaking of rigorous angels, we continue our series of Emily Dickinson poems. We're open to sponsorships for this series, by the way, if you happen to be an advertiser or, I guess, a wealthy patron. (laughs) reach out, let us know. We're working our way through all of the Dickinson poems selected by esteemed critic Helen Vendler in her book, Dickinson. And yes, that's the title. It's a great book, Dickinson. A perfect title for that book. It reminds me of that line about Katharine Hepburn's autobiography, which she entitled, Me. And a reviewer asked what other titles had been considered, and speculated that maybe it came down to two possibilities, me or book. But with Dickinson, there's really only one choice. Emily wouldn't quite be as good. Dickinson, perfect title. Okay, we buzz from poem number 134 to our next flower, poem number 138, which doesn't have bees or birds, but it does, well, look at this. Look at this. Emily is just on a roll with coincidences, isn't she? Last time we saw her dropping in on our Milton episode with a well-timed reference to Eden. And today she joins our discussion of the rigor of angels with a poem about angels. And the military and patriotism. Three stanzas of four lines each. Another glimpse into her genius brain. Here we go. Number 138. To fight aloud is very brave, But gallanter, I know, Who charge within the bosom The cavalry of woe, Who win and nations do not see, Who fall and none observe, Whose dying eyes no country regards With patriot love. We trust in plumed procession, For such the angels go, Rank after rank, With even feet and uniforms of snow. Okay, okay. Our entire understanding of this poem hinges on one phrase, I think. The Cavalry of Woe. Capitalized, capital W, and spelled W-O. Who is that? What do we know about them? They charge within the bosom. They're gallanter, or more gallant. Then those fighting aloud, they are private and secret, unloved and unappreciated. They march with even feet, rank after rank, and in plumed procession like angels. Actually, this is the cavalry of woe we're talking about, or the battle against the cavalry of woe. To be more precise, marching with even feet, rank after rank, in plumed procession like angels with uniforms of... Who are these soldiers... Who is the cavalry of woe? Everything will click into place when we understand who they are. How about women? W-O is an abbreviation for women. Or ghosts? Is this some reference to ghosts? Who are these quiet heroes taking on this cavalry of woe? Well, Helen Vendler points us toward a different understanding. Her contention, and I am willing to accept it, is that woe is woe, W-O-E, an alternative spelling for woe, as in woe is me, normally spelled with an E on the end, but here just W-O. The cavalry of woe, therefore, is a nod to the silent sufferers, the noisy heroes, brave soldiers, let's say, who fight heroic external battles. What happens to those? I'm talking about literal soldiers now fighting their battles. They're praised by nations. But who cares about silent sufferers? Who cares about those wrestling with inner demons? Who? No, no one. Well, no one but the Emily Dickinsons of the world anyway. She's ready to support those who have a cavalry of woe inside them and who are struggling, battling against that cavalry of woe. Victory over these woes will not lead to praise, and defeat by them does not lead to patriotic tributes. There will be no statues to those who have fought their battles against the cavalry of woe, and yet, and yet, Dickinson finds a way to make this even greater. She transports them above the military Processions. There might not be parades and patriotic tributes to the victories and losses of those fighting internal demons, but the fight belongs to an elevated realm. It's the stuff of the heavens. The soldiers are not clad in colored uniforms as real life soldiers are. They're in snow uniforms, uniforms of snow, white ones, ethereal uniforms. They're like angels, plumed processions. This is how noble and godly. The fight against inner turmoil is. The battle is gallant, she says. Gallanter than a soldier taking up arms. And it's angelic. Keep at it. If this is you battling those inner demons, keep it up. Keep up your fight against the cavalry of woe inside your mind and your heart. You might not be noticed by anyone for this struggle. Certainly, you won't be noticed by a a country or society at large, and maybe not by your friends and family or anyone you know either. But Emily notices, and those of us who read Emily Dickinson are reminded by her to notice too. Mm, That's poem number 138. William Egginton and his rigorous angels are next. Okay, joining me now for a return to the podcast is William Eginton, who was last here with his colleague, David Castillo, for a conversation asking the question, what would Cervantes do? He joins us today to discuss his new book, The Rigor of Angels, Borges Heisenberg Kant and the Ultimate Nature of Reality. William Eginton, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thank you,
1: Jack. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Okay, so I'm glad that I have some experience with you because I know you're you're a patient person and a good explainer. Uh, as I'm going through the title here, I read Borges and I think, okay, this is going to call forth all my powers, but I think I can keep my head above water. But we're really just getting started from Borges to Heisenberg to Kant. These are some deep thinkers we're looking at. I I fear I'm going to be paddling for my life.
1: I know I, I feel a little guilty, like I'm asking too much of my readers already. But, but thanks for
0: your patience. <laughs> OK, well, I'm glad to, I, I, the book actually explains it very well. And it's very readable. So uh, people will hopefully not be scared off by the, the names in the title. And you can sort of set the table for us here today. Your book opens with the three historical figures and four, I guess, if we count Charles Lindbergh, or five if we count Einstein. But but before that, we see there is a question, and the question is, where did it go? So I'd like to start with that question. What is the it that you're referring to there?
1: Well, uh, thank you very much, Jack. The, the it has several manifestations in that first opening chapter, that introduction, but really... The most literal at the front of uh, at the front of the statement at the front of the reference is um, the spirit of Saint Louis, as,
2: as mm-hmm. Charles mm-hmm.
1: Lindbergh explained. Because uh, I begin um, and I choose the year 1927 for the coincidence, the historical coincidence that. While Lindbergh was making his historic flight over the Atlantic, he came pretty close to flying over, uh, if you follow the traject- likely trajectories, uh, of, of the Spirit of St. Louis, to flying relatively closely over Copenhagen during a time when Brenna Heisenberg was spending time with his mentor, Niels Bohr, working on what would eventually become the paper, uh, that he would uh, then submit that spring to uh, physics, uh, a major physics journal in Germany. That would eventually become the paper that would uh, give birth to what we now call the uncertainty principle. Mm. Uh, Then Heisenberg's reputation and his name in the popular imagination is most closely bound. Uh, So starting with that historical coincidence, I I use the flight across the Atlantic as a way of getting into the story because that flight is, in some ways, if you think about it from the perspective of classical physics, it describes the trajectory of a particle. Particle is, uh, is some sort of an entity that is moving from point A to point B through space and over time. And the reason why that's important is that in classical physics, we can with a great deal of confidence say that a particle, as it moves from point A to point B over the Atlantic in this case, follows a definite path. And it follows a definite path regardless of whether we or anyone outside of the spirit of the cockpit of the Spirit of St. Louis is there to monitor doing mm. that. Mm-hmm. The problem uh, occurs in quantum physics, and this is what Heisenberg was really among the forefront in discovering and uh, and, and really defending the weirdness of from the get-go, is that um, fundamental particles, particles the size of an atom or smaller, like electrons, uh, it turns out don't follow the same rules. Mm. And so you can measure them at point A, and you can measure them at point B, and when you measure them, you can get something like a particle. But in moving from point A to point B, we've actually now demonstrated over 100 years of, of, of high energy uh, particle physics science that, in fact, it makes no sense to say. In, in fact, it's a violation of science to say that particles have a definite path that they followed. And so that's the, the very counterintuitive problem that the book is setting out to explore, the philosophy of, the literature of, and then ultimately the science of as well.
2: Hmm.
0: So when we think of something like a flight, and let's say it's we know where he takes off and where he lands, and in the middle, we don't know where Lindbergh is, but we know, based on our knowledge of how the world works, at least uh, when we're not talking about the subatomic level, that he went somewhere. It was either a straight line or a curvy line or it went up and down or something, but we know there was a path that that plane was on if it went from point A to point B. It didn't just teleport there, but that's not the same when we break things down to the subatomic level. Is that right?
1: That's exactly right, Jack. And not only is it not the same, we actually know through experimental science that it's not the same. And that's the remarkable thing. And some of the stories that this, especially in the science and the physics sections of this book that I recount, the stories uh, of the really difficult problems, and, and debates that physicists had, especially in the years following 1927, was uh, precisely around that problem. A whole crew of physicists of some of the greatest minds, if not the absolute greatest minds, because they include Einstein on one side of the debate, were insisting that whether we can see it or not, the path of that electron the path of fundamental particles, even smaller than electrons, that these particles, even if we can't figure it out where they, uh, where they are, they must have been someplace. And they must have followed a specific path, because that's just the way reality works. Uh, and on the other side, those who eventually would be known for the, what's called the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, and the forefront was Niels Bohr, but his mentee, Heisenberg, was really in some ways the one calling the shots, because he was uh, responsible for the, the back-breaking mathematics that led to these discoveries in the first place in 1925. Uh, they were the ones saying... No, it, do- it doesn't work that way, because the closer in you come to, to measuring these phenomena, the, the more those phenomena disappear right before your eyes. So there is no way of actually honing in all the way down on a particle's path. You're just not going to be able to get to it. And there's a number of paradoxical, uh, seeming paradoxical seeming uh, experiments that have uh, that have shown that, that began as thought experiments, in some cases, in many cases, in fact, thought experiments uh, proposed by, promoted by Einstein, but then were turned into real experiments over the ages. And those real experiments have, have, have come in, that results have come in over and over and over again now. And the results of those are very, very clear. Fundamental particles do not have a path before they're measured.
0: Hmm. So is this different from the issue that our observation of the s- subatomic particles will influence them and so we can never measure it because as soon as we start looking or start trying to measure, our the, the methods we're using to measure will influence them and so we can't kind of predict and then measure to confirm? Or is it really true that if nobody is there, Nevertheless, that particle is not following a path that we we might expect it to if it were an airplane flying over the ocean.
1: Right, it's really the latter, Jack. Because mm. the former, it's both are true. <laughs> yeah, but geez. what's much more surprising is the latter. Yeah. Right, one can. <laughs> And, yeah. and, and, and in fact, there was a lot of confusion at the beginning of these uh, debates when Niels Bohr was trying to explain this already at the end of the twenties, early thirties to uh, to audiences. A lot of the physicists would listen to what he was saying and scratch their heads and say, "Well, okay, we we know that you, you can't measure without disturbing what you're measuring. Is that all you're saying?" And in fact, a lot of people today, when they read or, or try to understand the uncertainty principle, they're thinking that as well—that mm-hmm. it involves the interference of our instruments. Uh, but but in fact something much deeper is going on and that much deeper was uh, that thing that's much deeper that phenomenon that's much deeper that's much more counterintuitive that's much more threatening to our sense of reality was really articulated in some of the best ways by the opponents of the Copenhagen interpretation so Einstein as I already mentioned another an Austrian uh, physicist named Irving Schrödinger um, and he very famously articulated his opposition in a uh, in a thought experiment that became associated with his name, much to his chagrin, because the thought experiment had been intended to to show precisely the how ludicrous uh, Schrodinger <laughs> thought that this theory was, right? And of course, you know what I'm talking about, it's the yeah. famous Schrodinger's yeah. cat yeah. Uh, experiment. And in the cat experiment, what, uh, what he proposes is, imagine, if he called it an infernal device, and in this infernal device you uh you have a poor cat, and my cat sitting next to me right now, sleeping and not in the slightest bit uh concerned that i'm uh, I'm raising this prospect uh uh good for him but in this infernal device, you have a cat and you have a vial of cyanide and you have a geiger counter. And the Geiger counter is one to uh, react to the detection of a particle. If you put certain radioactive material down, and this is exactly the same principle, by the way, as the existence or non-existence of the path of a um, of a particle. If you put a piece of radioactive material material next to a Geiger counter, you can, over a period of time, say with relative certainty that a certain number of particles will, or a certain percentage of that material will decay over a certain amount of time. Mm. What you can never say with any certainty is when that's going to happen. What this means is that over a certain period of time, you can set that Geiger counter and be pretty sure that at the end of that period of time, something will have happened. Right, The Geiger counter will have uh, recorded something. If you take the Geiger counter out, you can have the same certainty. Some particle will have decayed over this amount of time. The point of Schrodinger's, if you will, his attempt to show how ludicrous, how ridiculous he thought the, the quantum theory at the time was, the point that he was making was, well, if you set up this device in such a way that the decay of a particle will actually trigger a response in the Geiger counter, which will in turn break the glass of cyanide, but you haven't yet opened up the box. During that period of time, no observation has taken place, and therefore you have a cat that's both alive and dead, according to quantum theory, he said. As he said, sort of smeared out or blurred between life and death. Now, of course, that experiment has never been done, not just because it would be unethical, but because it also, no one took it seriously. The point being, the point that he was doing, what he was trying to do, it was that thought experiment to say that in the realm of classical physics, where we can, in fact, react to and see and measure things, there must be some correspondence between that realm and uh, the sub- subatomic realm, which means that the very same paradoxes that occur at the subatomic realm, we have to find some way of, of accounting for them in classical physics, and that the theory that the uh, partisans of quantum mechanics at the time were putting forward which essentially boils down to, no, these particles don't exist per se until they're observed, or these decays won't happen until they're observed, or these pathways don't exist until they're observed, that that can't possibly account for the phenomena that we, we measure in classical physics, and that that doesn't make sense. So those on his side of the stage, which included Einstein, they were always convinced that it was a question of our knowledge. Our mm. knowledge is limited. We're not seeing all the way down. But what, in fact, emerged from these thought experiments was a long series of actual experiments that proved that that was not the case, that proved something that Schrodinger is also responsible for coining, uh, which is quantum entanglement, that quantum entanglement is real. That when you make measurements on entangled particles, even if they're separated by long, long distances, measuring a value for one can instantaneously determine something about the value for the other. And it's not simply the case that those values were set at some time in the past and that you're only discovering the truth about them, but rather that uncovering something about the one, measuring something about the one, determines in that very moment something about the other. And that uh, is something that for our mind today and our experiences in classical physics is absolutely impossible. We don't understand how that can happen. Yeah.
0: And Einstein, just to give him a, a few more nods, it you know, I feel like if any listeners are sitting there thinking, well, this just cannot be true because I know how the world works, and and no just because you're getting smaller and smaller, it can't mean that this is happening. Einstein called it nonsense, and he, right. he called quantum entanglement spooky action at a distance, which has That's always right. kind of haunted me. It's such a perfect phrase. Uh yeah. and yet it is it has borne itself out and And uh, it it really you can see where it would upend the way people think about the world. It it, it would be like, you know, Darwin and evolution or just a a seismic change in how people view everything around them and and their own place in it. But I want to kind of make sure we get to the other thinkers as well. So where does Borges fit into this?
1: Right. So the reason that these other two thinkers are are part of this conversation is that, and this is sort of, if you will, the entire point of the book, this is what led me into this intellectual journey for the past five, six years as I was researching, writing this book, is that I was, in my own teaching and reading and thinking, I was just delighted and, and really gobsmacked to find that some thinkers from radically different fields We're approximating extremely similar understandings of nature, of of reality, and of the relationship between the human mind, our human perceptive ability, and the world, uh, however it is out there. And I ended up, there's a number of thinkers, you've alluded to this yourself in the run-up to our conversation, but the book covers a lot of ground. In some ways, it goes back 2,500 years, because one of the first thinkers that I'm writing about is Parmenides, his uh, disciple, Dino. Uh, and it comes right up into the 20th century, as well, with 20th century theoretical physics. But among these wide variety of characters, three started to, to stand out. One of them was uh, Immanuel Kant, great, great philosopher from the end of the 18th century. And then then those two other figures, the German quantum mechanics theorists and discoverer of quantum mechanics, and the Argentine poet and short story writer, Jorge Luis Borges. So... What is it about these three coming from radically different fields that sort of allows them to converge on the same question? I can start with with Borges, since you asked specifically to talk about him. Borges, as a story writer, was known for writing stories that were asking kind of fundamental questions. In certain ways, his stories can be thought of as very detailed, character-driven thought experiments. As if he took one of Einstein's great
2: mm.
1: imagistic challenges to quantum mechanics at his time and just allowed a great writer to fill them out with detail and sort of push them further and further into the limits of what they could possibly do. So one of the first stories that I delve into of, of Borges's was a story that uh, he published in the early 1940s um, that was likely, as I point out in the book, inspired by the great feats of a memory athlete, one of the first uh, recorded memory athletes, although memory athletes in some sense have existed for millennia. And this was a man by the name of Solomon Sharoshevsky, who was thriving in Moscow in the 19. 19- 20s, and then a uh, the journalist, and then he became this well-known uh, circus act, essentially in the 1930s, in the Soviet Union. And what he was able to do was simply astounding. Uh, in fact, he was the subject of study of one of the uh, early 20th century's great neuroscientists, Alexander Luria, whose work went on to inspire the likes of Oliver Sack, uh, mm. Jerome Brunner, and others like him. And what uh, Luria was able to do by studying Sharacevsky, or able to prove, is that to this point, science had never encountered a mind capable of the extent of memory feats that Sharacevsky was capable of. Sharacevsky could be given apparently, seemingly endless lists of trivia, of names, made up words, numbers by members of the audience. Uh, He would just listen to them and then he could repeat them back absolutely perfectly without ever messing up any details. So there's lots and lots of stories about Sharicevsky in the book, but what the the point that I'm trying to get at is that Borges probably read about this and was inspired to write a story also about a man who couldn't forget. But Borges being Borges does something very interesting with it. He sort of pushes it to the extreme. He says, let's imagine someone who has an act in this particular case. His character is called Funis. And Funes is a, a guy from the provinces of Argentina, has an accident, hits his head. And from that moment on, he's only 19 years old. For the next two years, he only lives for two years. Um, he finds himself in a situation that most of us would think is, is unbearable. He's paralyzed. He lies in a dark room in the back of his room. He smokes. He doesn't expose the senses to anything. And the reason why is that Funes, from the moment he's injured his brain, is incapable of forgetting anything, mm-hmm. any detail that encounters in the world. And not only is he incapable of forgetting anything, he's incapable of not perceiving absolutely everything. So he has to create a kind of sensory deprivation for himself in his room, because otherwise everything is too overwhelming. And as Borges writes, in imaginary conversations with this man, he is able to reconstruct an entire day from his memory, but it takes him an entire day to do so. Because his, his attention to every possible detail <laughs> is so overwhelming that, that he needs every the exact same amount of time to reconstruct something as it would take to live it in the first in the first place. So, in other words, someone like Funes, with perfect memory and perfect perception, is in, in fact incapable of what we would call abstraction. Right. Mm-hmm. And Borges proves this by saying, you know, he comes up with a numbering system because our numbering system doesn't make any sense to him. And that's, in fact, something that uh, you probably did get from from who also really didn't understand numbering systems. So instead of a decimal system in which you add a zero and you begin a new uh, series after a certain number of repetitions, someone like Sharoshevsky or in, in, in the fictional case, Funes actually starts counting. And each of his numerals has a personality, a name to it, a specific series of words that are associated with it. And he creates a numbering system that's in, you know, that's upward of 24,000 by the time Borges has met him. Each individual number remembered, but not a numbering system, as Borges tries to explain to him. And Funes doesn't understand that. In fact, for Funes, any use of language or numbers that we normal humans and our normal operating language are are used to is extremely frustrating because we don't get to the particularity of his experience. And this is where he has this very famous and funny line, Funes gets frustrated that we use the same word dog for the four-legged animal facing east at 314 and the four-legged animal facing west at 315. He doesn't understand. It bothers him. And this is the point I think the point is getting to. right? Is a creature or a human who would have that kind of perceptive ability is in fact not just someone we de facto never run into. It's in fact self-contradictory by nature. Because in order to have something like a perception, in order to observe, and now we're getting to where this is his thought, his his story connects, in this case with Heisenberg, in order to have something that you would call an observation of something very, very small, a super tiny distinction, the one doing the observing has to be present at both moments in time, at both kind of slivers of space-time, which means that. Entity that's doing the observing has to be blurring something, has to be both the same over those two separate moments in space-time and somehow different at the same time. It belongs to the very nature of observation itself that we that the observer has some kind of a minimal difference in distance with what's being observed, which means there can be no perfect observation of the real. There can be no perfect observation of ultimate reality. Even if the uncertainty principle weren't real, you'd have to invent it. It would have to be real, because there's no possible way to observe reality without that minimal difference, that minimal uncertainty, working its way into the observation itself. Mm. So that's why Borges came into this, and Kant came into it for very similar reasons, because Kant, as a philosopher, was also dealing with the problem of how can humans know? This is a fundamental question to ask Kant was suggesting, it lies at the basis of our possibility of producing accurate science about the world. And Kant was provoked, he was challenged by a radically empiricist thinker named David Hume. David Hume was also a deeply morose, depressive man who found his own theories to be almost unbearably depressing, but he couldn't find any way around. And David Hume said, essentially, anytime we think that we've created science about the world, rigorous laws of nature, for example, the laws of physics, we're fooling ourselves because all we actually ever have access to are what he called impressions. Just one thing that happens to be happening right now, then another thing that happens after that. And if we think that we see regularity, we think we can glean something like a law of physics we're fooling ourselves, because really all we're doing is succumbing to habit, to put it kind of in very colorful terms. We wake up in the morning, the sun is rising, we begin to assume that the sun rises every day, uh, that there must be some sort of a special law behind it, but in fact, we're just getting into a habit of seeing the sun come up every day. There's absolutely nothing that's causing that to happen that we can be 100% sure about. And Kant, in response to that, came up with something that was very similar to, because it was ultimately influential, a thinker like Borges or a story writer like Borges, dealing with his character Funes. Kant realized that in order for us to even perceive something in the first place, some sort of a sliver of space-time, something like an event, we in fact already are importing something like uh, what he called a synthesis, a before and after in order for us to make an observation in the first place, we, the human observer, has to be spanning a before, during, and after. And in so doing, we're already laying the groundwork for a science that's not about the world out there as it is in itself, but a science of the conditioned possibility for us to be able to see anything in the first place. And this, to kind of bring that long uh, narration to a close, is ultimately the philosophical take-home that Heisenberg brought in from his own uncertainty principle and from his own invention of quantum mechanics, when he said, after many years of debating with Einstein, something was fundamentally different from what Einstein would take from all of these debates, when he said, we have to remember that when we do science, when we do physics, we're not studying the world in and of itself. We're studying the world as it reveals itself to our instruments of observation.
2: Mm.
0: Well... Once again, I mean, it it raises the question of: Isn't there a world out there independently of us? And and when thinking about the laws of the world or the the creation of the world, we think about God or a a, a maker, and we think sometimes of him as being sort of a, a watchmaker, and he he. He sets right. out all of the—I'm using he, but you know what I mean, yeah. the, whoever the maker yeah. is—sets is, out all of these laws and winds it up and then lets it go. And, and we might have a hard time figuring out how certain things work, but it is there as a system to work. And I gather that Borges, Kant, and Heisenberg— would not have followed Einstein down the path of, you know, God does not throw dice and it's us to figure out the mysteries of God and the universe and so forth. Why didn't they think that?
1: No, it's a really good question. That's one of the reasons why they, you know, for all of their different frailties and weaknesses, I ended up choosing them as heroes in the story because they, they all exhibited uh, an uncommon tendency. In, in human intellectual history, an uncommon tendency not to have that kind of confidence uh, that that Einstein in this so, so witty way always had confidence in. This idea of the old one does not play dice with the universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, this idea of having a certain confidence in the way things are out there, that ultimately reality is in a certain way and that it's our job to discover it. And we may have a long way to go, but when we get there, it's all going to be clear. This is something that all three thinkers in some ways fundamentally disavowed. I should immediately add, however, is that not a single one of them disavowed something like reality out there.
2: Mm.
1: These are not uh, idealist or solipsistic idealists, but what they said was the best that science can do is to understand science as it reveals itself to us. Mm. Uh, and that means that when and and then and the other side of that is that we get we fall into potentially a lot of danger, uh, danger of error, danger of fanaticism. Kant would say, when we unconsciously or implicitly import models of reality that can correspond to our imagination and simply assume that they must that reality must in some sense look like this. For example, extended in space and uh, and successive in time. And what I try to point out in the book is that a lot of contemporary physics. While most physicists would absolutely agree with the statement that reality, in some sense, is real, is out there, would also agree with a statement along the lines of space and time as we understand it and as we sense them and as we experience them are not fundamental to that reality.
0: Mm. Okay, well, I want to take a quick break. But before we do that, why don't we talk a little bit about The Rigor of Angels, the title of your book, which comes from a quote from Borges. What was he describing there?
1: So the interesting thing about the title, a line from Borges that I fell in love with a long time ago, is that in some sense it's a, it, the title is a negative title. I'm not referring to the rigor of angels as something that we in fact should strive for or should believe in, but rather it's a kind of cautionary tale. It mm-hmm. comes at the end of a short story by Borges that is in some ways a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale precisely about belief in, in a world that has a rigor, as he calls it, that Pre exists our tools of reckoning uh, with that rigor. And what he says is uh, the context for that uh, quotation comes in a postscript to the story. The story was published in the early 1940s. So during uh, World War II. but he projects in a really kind of eerie way. At the end of the story, he writes a postscript that he, he post-dates, and he dates it to 1947, if I remember correctly. Uh, so he, of course, as writing the story at that point, has no idea what 1947 is going to be. So at this moment, it's a work of science fiction. And in the postscript, he describes a kind of post-apocalyptic scene, which uh, the narrator, whoever the narrator is, writes a report to those reading this story about a world that's been overtaken by an idea. And that idea has started to uh, pop up and invade reality in all sorts of ways. And that invasion of reality, Borges writes, takes place because reality gives way in front of the power of this idea. And how could it not give way, he writes. The reason that it gives way is because humanity is has a tendency to become enchanted with the idea of a rigor that preexists it. And then he, then he says, and this is where the line comes from, and certainly there is rigor in the world, but humanity forgets and forgets again that it is a rigor of chess masters and not of angels.
2: Mm.
1: A rigor of chess masters is a rigor that we bring to our experiences. It's a rigor, and this is exactly what Kant said. Kant said, look, science is real we can come up with objective truths. They're objective because they objectively describe the way that the world works for someone like us, measuring it with the tools that we have, which was also what uh, what uh Heisenberg said. Our mistake, and this is what Borges is referring to in this quotation, our mistake, and it's one that we make over and over again, is to believe that that rigor, the rigor that's necessary for our science and that we discover is rigor that pre-exists us and that's independent of ourselves, our tools, our way of understanding the world. It's not. It's a rigor of chess masters, not of angels.
2: Mm.
0: Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back with more from William Egginton. okay we're back so as you were talking about borges in particular and the thought experiment and the way he would push something like memory uh to an extreme it reminded me of a joke by the comedian stephen wright and mm-hmm. he had i remember him <laughs> i don't know if you know him he has a very dry style oh, yeah, and yeah uh, yeah i remember his deliberate. Well, yeah, so. his delivery is unforgettable. and he's, The joke was, he said, I have a map of the United States. It's actual size. And then he <laughs> said, it says one mile equals one mile. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, thinking through, well, what would such a map like that be? You could imagine someone saying, well, the more you know, the best map would be the most detailed map you could imagine that would have the most information on it. And an actual size map, and this is, you know, before the internet and we're in the days of paper maps. And then you think, well, if you had a map like that, to spread it out, you would need the entire country. And basically, you'd just be overlaying it on the actual country. A map like that would do you no good. You could basically just... You'd have to walk along it. You might as well just walk the country yourself as you were trying to see what was on the map. You wouldn't need the map. You have reality. And I always thought that what that kind of said, apart from being just funny, is (laughs) that basically the best map isn't the biggest map. That it's not necessary to get to a scale of one mile equals one mile. In fact, the best map would be something that reduces it. In order to make it useful, you'd have something much smaller that you could carry in your car and unfold, and it would help you get to where you wanted to go and so on. And I'm wondering, is the reaction of people who are trying to live in the world, and they hear a Heisenberg, they hear a Borges, they hear a Kant, and they say, well, okay, you're pushing the limits with these thought experiments but maybe we need to retreat from that in order to get something that's more practical maybe expanding it in these directions isn't useful because we have to live in the world and and you're actually kind of the extremes of your thought isn't practical for us is that but i'm guessing you have a different view so what is it that that these extremes give us beyond just a well if if someone could remember everything, they'd destroy themselves with <laughs> with trying to survive
1: look, Jack, if reading my book um led you to connect Steve Wright's very funny joke to heisenberg's uncertainty principle then i can pack up and go home because my job's done that's exactly what i was trying to get at and let me and, and and perhaps you don't know this story and if if you don't then you'll be all the more amazed to to hear it And i'm just delighted for the opportunity to to lay this one out for you but steve wright the person he got this from is none other than borges yeah so Bor- yeah, Borges wrote a little story, it's uh it's one of his shortest, less than a paragraph. I actually have a recording somewhere of him reading it in his slow uh melodic Argentine Spanish. It takes 55 seconds on the CD. So it's less mm. than a paragraph and it's called quite simply Of Rigor and Science. And what and it's it's not, it comes across as a parable. And in this parable he describes an emperor of a realm and the emperor sends his cartographers out to map the realm. And he says he wants an extremely detailed map. And they come back with him, and the map that they bring back is huge. It's the size of a small city. And uh he says, this is great, but it's not detailed enough. And then they come back, and they bring back a map that's even bigger. And it's the size of a small state. And he says, yeah, still not detailed enough. And then they come back with a a, a map that's exactly point for point, just like in Steve Reich's anecdote, the size of the realm itself. And then Borges ends with a sort of apocalyptic sentence saying the, uh, the scraps of that map are blowing like, uh, like weeds across this destroyed kingdom. <laughs> right. So exactly everything that you just said in, in, in a nutshell. And that yeah. is exactly the point, right? Is we forget that the ultimate goal of knowledge can't be to perfectly one for one represent the world as it is in and of itself, because that would be a failure of knowledge completely. Uh, that in fact, Something along the lines of what uh, Borges in his story about Funes called abstraction, generalization, has to be a goal of knowledge. Otherwise, it's not knowledge. And I think he uh, he very beautifully puts it. Um, this character Funes has borrowed uh, several dictionaries. He's learned, uh, apparently, effortlessly. He's learned Latin, Portuguese, uh, any number of other languages. But Borges paused, He says, I don't think we can actually say that he's capable of thinking. Because thinking requires abstraction. It requires the ability to generalize, to step back, as you put it, to have a smaller map of the world, not a map that uh, that corresponds one for one uh, to the world. So the connection that I'm trying to make in the book is say that that relatively in retrospect, simple philosophical narrative uh, idea of Borges's is, is implicit in Kant as well, and is really the reason why. Um, physics when it gets down to the absolute micro level that uh the, the threshold that was crossed at the beginning of the 20th century necessarily imports in its observation something like the reality uh, the uncertainty principle
0: Right. And in terms of literature, I always love the the books that kind of defy the interpretation or the word choice in the poem that can mean two things at once. and And it, it kind of forces you to live in that flicker, as Conrad would say, or live where things tremble between certainty and uncertainty. And it sounds like these writers are suggesting, whether someone is a philosopher or a a literary thinker or a particle physicist, you'll do your best thinking if you accept that there are some of these things that aren't intuitive, that you need to let your mind stretch to expand the way reality is, even when reality doesn't seem to conform with the reality that you thought you knew when you were five years old.
1: That's exactly right, that there are— and. You know, another way of putting it, there are going to be necessarily indelible flaws in our picture of the universe, because if we were to erase them completely, we would lose our our, our ability to picture anything at all. We would lose any grasp on the universe whatsoever. So they're necessary for our knowledge. I think that's a very good way of putting them. You know, Heisenberg was very attuned to these sorts of questions in the early 1940s when borges was publishing these stories and the two again didn't have any knowledge of each other but he was hard at work on a manuscript which would go down in history and in intellectual history as the manuscript of 1942 it was never published until after his death uh, but he circulated it among friends and, uh, and colleagues and it was a philosophical manuscript and it was largely a manuscript about language and, uh, one of the, the, the things that, uh, um, Heisenberg does in that manuscript is he derives something along the lines of, or very similar in structure to the uncertainty principle about knowledge itself, and particularly the way that humans use, use language. And he says language has, you can think about language as having these, poles of operability from uh, uh, one extreme, uh, which is the extreme that physicists tend to use, which is language becomes very, very concrete. Um, and we're trying to use it in a way where the meanings of words change as little as possible all the way to the other end, which you would call is, uh, being exemplified by poets, which really rely on flexibility, the fungibility of language, the ability of words to have multiple uh, meanings depending on context and depending on the relationship with other words. and Heisenberg says, knowledge requires an interaction and relationship of all of these different levels across the spectrum of language use, which means that you can never have... A knowledge that's entirely perfectly accurate of the world that would in which, you know, to go with Funes, uh, you would have this, an idea of a one for one relationship, not only between every word and every entity or object in the universe, but every moment in time of that entity and the object. That's what Funes is striving for, impossibly, of course. And, and so Heisenberg is also gleaning the absolute impossibility of that because knowledge, human knowledge, requires the inherent flexibility, what you call that shimmering effect of language that comes from the poetic usage. And human thought requires that as well. Mm.
0: I wonder if, I mean, Heisenberg, certainly in order to prove his point to his people, he had to use mathematical equations and formulas, and Kant had his own special language, practically an entire language he invented in order to try to Convey his point, but I wonder if all three of them would have uh benefited from following Borges' example and, and doing it in parables and short stories and and kind of <laughs> asking us to expand ourselves that way.
1: Well, I mean it's an interesting question. Uh I think the you know, the nice thing in some ways You know, the the Sufi parable about the blind man and the elephant, uh you know, each Mm -hmm. coming up with a different description based on what they're touching. In some ways what I'm trying to do with this uh with this book is is say, look, you can have the mathematically the mathematical genius turned Experimental physicists and theoretical physicists, Werner Heisenberg, on the one hand, you have the the imaginative short story writer who reads everything that he can get his hands on, uh, on the other, Borges and the uh, the great systematic philosopher challenged by um the upstart empiricists from uh, from England, Kant, on the other. Each of them, coming from their very specific intellectual history, is like one of those blind men in the Sufi uh parable groping with his or her hands at something and describing it in the language that he or she comes from uh and the language that he or she has learned to think with, and in so doing, bring the three together and of course, one could write a book in which you had many more coming together from different fields, but these seem to be a nice triangulation for me of this uh of the, of this topic are helping us grasp something precisely because they're coming from such different ways of using language. So yes, I mean, in some ways... The proof of concept for me of this book was that I was able to, uh, in some ways, as a non-physicist, although one who's done a lot of math and physics and is, uh, you know, as an amateur uh, his whole life long, I was able to articulate, on my own terms, something very akin to one of the most important, I think, uh, interpretations of quantum mechanics going today. It's called the Relational Interpretation of Quantum Mechanics, and its uh, most famous articulator is uh, Italian physicist Carlo Rovelli. And and to, and I was able to do so on the basis of reading Borges and Kant and other physicists, and even before I had encountered O'Reilly's thought. Um, mm. And this was a, a great proof of concept for me that that one can, granted, not in any way claiming to know in depth the experimental physics involved. I'm I'm always depending on the great interpretations of of physicists who are doing us favor of, of describing their work and describing their interpretations of their work uh, for um, uh, general readerships. And yet, on the basis of reading, a short story writer, and a poet like Borges, a philosopher like Kant, was nevertheless able to approximate some of these ideas without even, before even having read the interpretation that would later convince me.
2: Mm.
0: Okay. So last question. What is What do you mean by metaphysical prejudice? I feel like we've been talking about that maybe a lot without using that actual phrase, but how did these three undermine the effects of it? And what does it mean for us that they did so?
1: Right. So so that's a term that I kind of push in at, towards the end of the book when wrapping it up and uh, the philosophical level as a as a sort of understanding of what's the big take home from the book. And the term actually comes from the Italian physicist whom I just quoted to you or just mentioned to you, Carlo Rovelli. And Rovelli's point, which, and here I'm exactly on the same page with him, is that um, we, be as as run of the day, run of the mill people in our everyday lives, or as uh, physicists trying to understand the ultimate nature of reality, or as philosophers, we have a tendency to fall into beliefs that he terms uh, beliefs of metaphysical prejudice. What he means by that is what you and I talked about earlier, is this tendency to believe that the world is in a certain way, the way that we've grown mm. up understanding it to be. We project onto the world certain fundamental ways that it must be, even if we're not looking at it in, uh, at the time. Uh, that it's extended in space, that it's successive in time. These are the classic ways. And that reality itself, kind of the grist of reality at the most fundamental level, even if we can't see it, even if it's beyond our instruments to be able to, uh, uh, to trace its contours, is that way fundamentally. That's metaphysical prejudice. It's metaphysical because it's beyond our ability to measure. And yet we remain convinced or so many of us remain convinced that it is in that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, This metaphysical prejudice, uh, I argue towards the end of the book, is has been important in the history of science in these debates. And we can see it And part of the point of the intellectual history of the book is to delve into these debates and show how metaphysical prejudice was at work, potentially acting as a blinder on. um, the abilities of some of our greatest minds to really accept what was what their experimental results were telling them, but it also functions in our everyday lives as a way of blinding our own selves to you know what we're finding out about other people around us. We believe certain things about the world. We believe certain things about our relationships to other people. We believe certain things about uh, about knowledge, about people's behaviors, and we do so at risk when we're willing to turn over to uh, to disregard our observations in favor of something that we've never in fact observed
0: Mm. Okay, the book is called The Rigor of Angels Borges Heisenberg-Kant and the Ultimate Nature of Reality William Egginton, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Jack, anytime
2: (music)
0: Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Emily Dickinson for her snowy angels fighting off the gloomy forces within. And to William Egginton for cheering us up and making us all a little bit smarter. You can find his books, including his latest book, at a bookstore near you. Do check them out if you can. We have two women in a row coming up. One is an 18th century English woman who wrote a book called The Female Quixote, and the next is a 20th century pioneer of divorced women going through some stuff. It's sex in the city set in the jazz age. Ursula Parrott was there 70 or so years before Carrie Bradshaw, and she led a fascinating life. And while we're in the jazz age, why not stay there for a follow up episode and talk to a biographer of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yes, that's coming up soon as well, along with a, a passionate connoisseur of medieval manuscripts. We'll have that's an interview and a book that truly put a smile on my face. And boy, as if that weren't enough, how about a ghost story by Virginia Woolf to kick things off for Halloween month? Does that sound good? It sounds good to me. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.